Isn't it good to know that we have a good, good Father that cares for us and loves us and meets our needs? Wow, that is so special. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Luke chapter 16, uh, first verse up through, well, we're going to read up through about the 13th verse today, 14th verse a little bit. Uh, we're talking about uh, money, money, money. And we've been studying through some of the parables. We went through uh, four weeks in Luke 15, where we were studying about all the lost things, the lost sheep and the lost coin and two lost boys, <laughs> the good boy, the self-righteous one was just as lost, maybe more lost than his brother because he just didn't realize he was lost. He thought he had it together. Well, today, as, as Jesus is speaking in this passage, he's dealing with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees had a problem because they thought they had it all together. There was no problem for them, and their problem was that they were so caught up with their money, and they didn't see how money related to, uh, to the things of God. They didn't see how money related to their spiritual life. They kind of separated them apart, and yet we can't do that. We're going to see that this morning. In verse 14 of Luke 16, it says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money. Nothing wrong with having money. In fact, uh, people have said, I've learned to live with it, and I've learned to live without it. And, and I have to be honest with you, I'd probably learn, like to learn to live with it more than without it. But, but they were lovers of money. They were listening to all the things, and they were scoffing. They were laughing at Jesus. There was an old man, a rich old man. He was kind of crotchety, negative, always complaining. And one day he was visited by, it, it, in, in the passage I read, it was a rabbi, but I think I'll make it a pastor. I, I like that a little better. Anyway, he was visited by this pastor, and wasn't long after they were talking, and the pastor was listening to his negative attitude and his critical attitude, and he was just a crotchety old guy. The pastor said, uh, I've got an idea. You know, he thought about this in his mind, and he said to the man, let's go over here by the window. They looked out the window and the pastor asked him, he says, what do you see out there? The old man says, well, I, I see some men and I, I see some women and I see some kids playing. The pastor said, good, good. He says, let's, uh, let's go across the room. And there was a mirror there and he had him look into the mirror and he said to the man, well, what do you see? And the man kind of frowned and he responded, well, obviously I see myself. And interestingly, the uh, Pastor replied, well, both the window and the mirror were made of glass. But the glass of the mirror was covered with a little bit of silver. And no sooner is the silver added than all we can see is ourselves. We don't see others. It begins to be all about us. Because money can do that to us if we're not careful. And so we want to talk a little bit about the world view, the Christian's world view of money. Um, it's interesting, the Bible deals a lot with money. Did you ever realize that how much Jesus speaks about money? There's all kinds of passages that deal with money, and yet uh, we struggle with that idea of seeing how it relates to our spiritual lives. It, it, it's separated, just as the Pharisees saw it as separated. I asked you a question last week, and I asked you to think about it this week. I asked you this question. Do you love God and use money, or do you lo love money and use God? 
going to ask you that again towards the end of this message. But I want you to think about it. Do you love God and use your money? Is it a tool? Or do you love your money and use God? Well, this is kind of a different parable we're going into. People have a struggle with interpreting. What, what was Jesus saying here? It's called the unrighteous steward or the unrighteous manager. And I want to just read to you the first eight verses. And as I'm reading them, I will uh, make some comments. And then we're going to move into verse 9. And it's here that Jesus begins to explain what he's getting at. He really doesn't get to it in the, uh, in the first few verses. But it, it's a story that sets the tone. It says, there was a rich man who had a manager. Now, a manager is anyone who would take care of whatever you put under his authority. But he would have authority to oversee that. For instance, Abraham had a manager. He was a servant. He was a slave in his home. And he was over much of what Abraham owned. And when he needed a wife for his son, he sent him off to find a wife. You don't have to come back and check with me whether she's perfect or not or anything else. You have that responsibility. Uh, Joseph, if you remember the story of Joseph, he was taken into slavery, and he ended up in the home of a man by the name of Potiphar, and he was so effective at what he was doing that Potiphar made him the manager over his entire household. The only thing he didn't have responsibility for was his wife. And so here was this manager. He was uh, reportedly in charge of a number of things that his master had placed under his authority. And this manager was reported to him, to his master, as squandering his possessions. And you remember that word, squandering, from our study of uh, the prodigal son, because he took his father's inheritance, what his father gave to him, and it was his inheritance, and he squandered it. He frivolously wasted it. Now, the thing about this manager is it wasn't his money. But he was misusing it. He was probably embezzling money. He was spending it on his own lifestyle. It's, sometimes it's a lot easier to spend somebody else's money than our own. And when we have expense accounts or whatever, we're working and there's money out there. Wow, that's, that's what it's there for. And so that was kind of what this individual was doing. He was using it for his own means. And his manager called to him, and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? What, what are the rumors that are coming back? I want you to give me an accounting of your management. I want you to go through the books and prepare them so you can sit down and tell me what's there, or you can no longer be manager. I'm going to fire you, but what I want you to do first is go through the books and lay them out so that I can see exactly what's happened here. I don't know if this was so that the boss could give him another job or decide where he would put him or where he would place him. I don't know what the reason was. Uh, in my mind, he gave him a little too long to work on it because the manager went to work uh, with his own idea. The manager said to himself in verse 3, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? <laughs> What, what's going to be in my employment, for I'm not strong enough to dig. In other words, he probably hadn't been doing much physical exercise. Hands were probably a little bit soft from working at the desk. I'm ashamed to beg. That's embarrassing. Uh, it's kind of interesting that it didn't bother him to steal, but it does bother him to beg. He doesn't want people to see what's going on in his life. He just wanted to do it in secret. I think sometimes we're that way about things we do, uh, if it's wrong, we don't feel so bad about it until we get caught. Certainly our children are that way. 
You know, if, if they can get away with something, that's fine. But when they get caught, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you know how that goes, don't you, parents, uh, when you see that with your kids? He says, I know, I have an idea. So, verse 4, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. I, I've got an idea where these people now will benefit me and meet my needs. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe the master? How, how, how much is there that you owe him? And he said, uh, hundred measures of oil. Uh, measures, I looked it up, was somewhere between seven and eight gallons. So probably about seven and eight hundred gallons of oil was what he owed. That was quite a bit. I don't know for sure what kind of oil it was. I don't think he was digging holes in the ground necessarily, but possibly olive oil or some of those things, and that would be a very expensive amount of money uh, if you took it all out. I would imagine what the manager did was he oversaw the land of the owner and then brought back the rent that was due uh, based on what was raised. So let's say seven, 800 gallons of oil, and he said to him, take your bill and very quickly with your pain, change it right in 50, cut it 50%, and uh, <laughs> that'll be fine. Manager can't do anything if you do that, or the owner. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. A uh, measure was probably 10 to 12 bushels. So let's say there was 100 bushels of wheat. You, do you remember the bushel basket? They're pretty big. We used to pick fruit in them, and we'd get things in them. And, and if you had 100 of those, that's a lot of wheat. And he says, well, cut it by 20%. Put down that you only owe 80. And that was sufficient. And so he really stole a lot more from his master doing this, and the master was going to be without that. And his master praised the unrighteous manager. Now, I don't think he praised him because he swindled him out of all that money, but because he was cunning. It says, because he acted shrewdly. And let me just stop real quick, because Jesus is telling us this story, and he's saying, here's a crooked manager, and here is probably a crooked owner because he thought the manager did a good job figuring out how to take care of himself and take care of his future. And that's what he's talking about. And the two guys that reworked their de what they owed, they were probably crooked too. So I just want you to realize these guys are all scoundrels. They are, they are worldly scoundrels. And he says his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then he makes a key statement for this passage. He said, for the sons of this age, of this generation, of the people that live today are more shrewd. And if you study that word, it means wise. They're not just shrewd, they're wise in what they do. It's, it's, it's the ingenuity, it's the cleverness of what they do that is stated here. They're more shrewd in relationship to their own generation, to their own kind, than are the sons of light. The reason was because these worldly individuals were looking forward to their future. How were they going to take care of themselves in the future? Today we do that. We talk about how will we take care of ourselves after we retire? How will we take care of ourselves if there's a recession or depression? We set things in motion. That was the idea here. 
And he says they're more shrewd than the sons of light. And it's the idea that as believers, as Christians, we understand our faith, but we may not think in terms of what do we need to do in preparation for eternity. What's our eternity going to be like? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. But what do we do beyond that? Are we really preparing? And that's where he says that they're smarter than we are. Because we just kind of oftentimes go through life with the idea of what happens, happens. We're going to see when we get there. Instead of thinking about what God would have. Well, I want to give you four principles that I believe come out of this passage that Jesus gave to us. And in verse 9... Listen to what it says. It says, I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of wealth of unrighteousness. In other words, money of this world, so that when it fails, and get this, it will. There is a day coming when it will cease to be there. They will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And I really think it's just the idea that we are to use our money as a tool. Your money is a tool. It's not a basis for what you're trying to. It's not the end in itself. It is a means to an end. It's a tool. And here it says for spiritual purposes. So when it's all gone, you get to heaven. And guess what? There's people up there because of you and how you invested your money and how you got involved. We have a... a, um, a little folder in our programs today for Annie Armstrong. And it talks about the various needs that are out there and individuals that are out sharing. And, and the idea is that we can use our money as a tool by giving towards that so people come to know Jesus Christ. We can get involved in missions. We can get involved in the activities right here. But is your money a tool? Is it used for greater goals? Or is it something we just kind of want to stick back there? And, uh, and hold on to. Stockpilot. Have a big savings account or a large portfolio, uh, however we're going to do it. You know, back in Second Corinthians, Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers, and he said, uh, I- I'm going to come and take an offering, and it's going to go to the churches at Jerusalem because they're struggling because of the fact that there's been a depression and there isn't much money, there's been a drought, and they need our help. And in verse 6 of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, we oftentimes use it in terms of our giving. It says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly, if you give very little, if you invest very little in the cause of Christ, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, he who sows a little reaps little. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He uses his money effectively. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency. Now, this is an interesting thing. Always having all sufficiency in everything, if you are giving joyfully to the Lord and to the things of the Lord, not just misusing it or mishandling it, You may have an abundance, he says, for every good deed. Who makes that abundance available? God. It's not to make us rich. 
It's that we might have money to use for him. And so money is to be a tool. I think we need to understand that it is not the end that we're striving for. Uh, Money also demonstrates our integrity. Let's go to verse 10. Right passage, huh? In verse 10 of our passage this morning, it says, He who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. In other words, if you give something that is uh, not very much to work with and they're faithful there, you can figure they're going to be faithful in something bigger. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If he's going to cheat with something small, don't expect him not to cheat with something big. That's really the picture that God's giving there. Money is a test of our integrity. And uh, it, it's true in the world, and it's true in the church, and as we look at what God gave us, uh, how we use it really determines how we're going to serve and how we're going to be used by God. You know, back in, in 1 Timothy, in the third chapter, it gives a qualification for both elders or pastors and deacons. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, here are some qualifications uh, Verse 4 and 5, it says this person is going to be an elder. He's going to be a pastor. He's an overseer for the church. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If he can't take care of the home, how is he going to take care of the church, which is bigger in terms of of the spiritual aspect. In, in verse 12, it talks about deacons. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and their households. And so it just talks about that idea that we are to be able to manage things effectively. And if you want to know if someone is qualified to serve in a certain position or you know if a person is qualified to work with you or you're going to loan them money, you better check out and see if they've been faithful with what they had before. It really is a sign of integrity, how we use our funds. Whether we just grab onto them and they become the basis for our life or whether we let them go to be used by God. Verse 11 and 12 of this passage. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, if you haven't been faithful in the use of that which has been entrusted to you, who's going to entrust you with true riches? If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And and as you look at this and you begin to say, who's it talking about that? Who may be an individual that's just going to entrust things to you. Maybe it's your boss or somebody else. But I really believe this idea of true riches has to do with the idea it's God. What's God going to entrust you with? What is he going to do with you? If you're not faithful with what God's entrusted you to here on earth, why should you expect him to trust you with more? We're stewards of of what we have. Um, You know, I I don't think we realize it, but what we have really isn't ours. It's just something we're going to pass on in time. We don't hold it forever forever. Uh, you may say, well, I've, I've got the deed to my house, I've got my deed to my car. Yeah, but there's some day that you aren't going to have them anymore. 
You have them as a stewardship right now for God. It's kind of like the car. You know, I, I don't go buy new cars anymore. I, I don't like the loss that I have coming off the lot, so I buy used cars. And so if you bought a new car, I just want to say to you today, I hope you're taking care of my car. Are you getting in and making sure it's uh, serviced regularly and that you're not hitting anything and you're not denting it up because it will soon be mine? Same is true with our house, isn't it? We pass it on. We sell it. Or if we die, our kids inherit it. Or whoever inherits it. Uh, somebody will. And so God's saying here, if, if, if we're not faithful with the small things we have right now, which are not ours, they really belong to God, then why is he going to give us more? If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is part of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, the, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, how are we going to know when you're going to come back? How do we know when you're setting up your kingdom? And he went through a number of things to talk about this. And then he got down to the parable of the talents, which we often talk about in terms of uh, faithfulness. And, and that's true what it is. But it, it's kind of an idea of faithfulness. Well, what will we get in eternity or what will we get in the millennial kingdom or uh, where is God going to use this? But I want to read it to you, and I just want to bring these principles out to you very quickly. It says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own slaves, and he entrusted his possessions to them. To the one he gave five talents. Talent was a measurement of money, so the one he gave a certain amount of money. To another he gave only two, but to another he only gave one, and he gave each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. So... Let's just talk about the idea that this is Jesus. He's given us gifts. He's given us abilities. He's given us finances, money to use. And immediately the one who had received the five talents went and he traded for them and he gained five more talents. This guy's shrewd in his dealing, but he, he improved on what his master had. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more, but he who received the one talent went away and he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. He didn't invest it. He didn't make it any better. He didn't use it effectively. He didn't use it as a tool for the benefit of his master. And so the first one came. The master came back, verse 19, and it says, Now after a long time the master of his slaves came and he settled accounts with them. Bring out the books is what he said. The one who had received the five talents came up and he brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. I, I've invested well. It, it's your money. It's not mine. And the master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. See, that's what this principle is that we're looking at in verse 11 and 12. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Man with two talents came in, told him that he'd made two more talents. The master said, well done, man. I, I'm going to increase your responsibilities. I'm going to give you greater responsibilities. I'm going to give you more. Well done, good and faithful servant. The man with the one talent came in. He buried it. It was in the ground, and he brought it in. He says, here it is. I knew you were a hard man, and I, I brought it back to you. And the master said, what did you do? I gave it to you 
to use as a tool to make more, to invest on my behalf. And all you did was bury it. Now, we talk about talents. Sometimes we talk about our, our, our spiritual gifts. Sometimes we talk about talents that we were born with. But here he's talking about money. That's really the ultimate in this story. And he said, you didn't use it for me. You just buried it. You see, what we have today really isn't ours. We're going to pass it on. It isn't something that we're going to keep. How are we dealing with the master's resources? How are you as individuals dealing with the master's resources? How are they used? Is it about what we can make for ourselves or is it about how we can use that which God now entrusts to us for his glory? When I get to heaven, are there going to be people standing there that say, Andy, I'm so glad that you invested in my eternal destiny because I wouldn't be here otherwise. It's a tool. Who or what do you love? Verse 13 really is a key to all of this. Verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and wealth or money, or mammon, however you want to translate that. You don't just hide it away. It's, it's to be used in a way that God is glorified and honored. And what it says is you can't serve money. If, if your whole week is just striving without thinking about God and how you're honoring God with your finances, it's just how to get more, you probably love money more than you love God. And it says you can't love them both. You'll love one and hate the other or hate that one and love the other. It's something that Jesus said. It's not me that's saying it. I'm sure glad. Because I struggle with this. Because I know there are days that, boy, the money's more important and I worry about where it's going to come from and how I'm going to do with what I have and how I'm going to make ends meet. And, and you get so worried about that, you don't think about how we're honoring God with what we have. Back in Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, it's just a few pages back, there's a story of a, another individual It was a very wealthy individual, a very well-off individual. He had done well in 12, beginning in the 16th verse. I skipped to 11. 12, verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable, saying, A land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I've got so much that I have made, uh, so much that I have raised, that I don't have any place to put it. And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for you. 
for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. All right, we've got a maid. I'm going to retire now. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. Probably had a heart attack. Now you will, who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I heard about a man that was bragging about his uncle. He said, my uncle was so amazing, a young man. My uncle was so amazing. He was so wise in terms of all the things that he earned and all of his investments, and, and he just died. But he died a multimillionaire. It's amazing. And these other guys were standing around. One of them looked at him and said, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. He died a multimillionaire. And the man said again, no, he didn't. And, and this individual bragging about his uncle, he said, how do you know? You didn't even know my uncle. He did die a multimillionaire. And the man said, who has the money now? You see, folks, we come in without anything. We go out and we leave it all with it. And it's not ours. You say, well, I'm going to leave it to my kids. It's a tool. If you amass a fortune, leave it to your kids. How are they going to spend it? Let me just say something. I, I will give you the ideal. If money is a tool. If you go out and you don't have any debt so your kids don't have to pay off anything, that's positive. If you go out and nothing's left, that means you've used it effectively, that's positive. What you needed to do with the kids was teach them how to make money when they were younger to take care of themselves and not have to rely on their inheritance. It's that old adage, teach a man, or give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. You teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. We need to be wise parents. We need to be bringing our kids up and training them to take care of themselves, not so they have to wait until mom and dad die and say, finally we made it. Money's a tool. I was told that about taxes once. We're doing taxes now. If you have a large tax return, you go, whoa, we're going to go wherever. We're going to spend this. We're going to have a great time. Isn't it great? We got a tax return. Uh, not necessarily. It simply means Uncle Sam's been using your money for a year. And he didn't give you any interest. Now, if you end up and you have to pay at the end, do you know what he's going to do when you have to pay him? You have to pay a penalty. It doesn't seem right that he wants my money all year, and then if I'm a little late, he wants me to pay more. But you get the picture. Money is a tool. I'm not saying it's wrong to have money. I think God blesses people with money. I think there are people who are rich. I think there are people who are well off. The key here is what does the money mean to you? How do you use the money? Is the money the mean, the end? Is that what you're striving for? The stuff you can get, the things you can acquire, the places you can go? Or is it a means to the end? And that's to glorify God. And that's really what the, this passage is all about. It's the unjust steward. How does it fit? How does it work? How can I know I love God and use my money? And how, or how can I know if I love my money and use God? 
To me, the very best way to know that is how do you pray? How do you pray? Is it, Lord, you know, I have all these needs. I'd sure like you to increase my income, and, and, and I'd sure like you to take care of this person who's sick, and, they're, and, and, and you know, Lord, I, I, uh, we have some payments to make, and I sure hope you'd give me the money to make those, and all of a sudden we find that we're using God. Or do I pray, Lord, you have given me more than enough. How do you want me to use it for your glory? doesn't mean that it's all going to go to missions. It doesn't mean it's all going to go to those kinds of things. I don't want you to get that idea this morning. It's not wrong to have it. But it's what part does it play in your life? How important is it to you? Is that what you strive after? We spend more time going to school to learn how to make money than we do striving to learn about our relationship with God so often. The extra time we have to spend in the study to learn about what Scripture says, we go, oh, man, I just don't have time for that. But we'll go to seminars to learn how to use our finances more effectively. Where does God fit? Where does the money fit? The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, everything you have. Love your neighbors, yourself, and use your money as a tool. And thank God for what he's given you. And I'm so thankful for what he's given me. Let's pray, shall we? Father, interesting passage, Father, when we look at it and see what it says, to realize that money is not the end, but the means to the end. Learning to use it as a tool in an effective way, not being afraid to open our hands and let it go when we need to do that, holding on to it so tightly that it can't be used. Not being like the man who simply stockpiled his money in big barns, his grain. Oh, he thought if he had enough, then he'd be great for the rest of his life, and all of a sudden his life was over. Father, it doesn't matter whether it's an individual or the church. If all we're doing is stockpiling money to have money, we're not using it. Help us to know how to use it and to be effective at that. Thank you, Father, for this passage. Different passage, Father. Different message. But it's important because you put it there. Thank you. Help us to take time to think through what our responsibilities are and how to be used and how to use the things we have for you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.